Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that, the worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Infectious disease specialist. We're looking for these things all the time. We just never know where they're going to come from or what they're going to look like. She's on the front lines fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. We need to attack everything we know, everything we can about this virus all at the same time. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Dr. Bonnie Maldonado. Now here's your host, Howard Wolf. As we all face the COVID-19 pandemic that has riddled the globe, we have questions that need to be answered. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders, Dr. Bonnie Maldonado, has many of these answers. Bonnie is an alumna of Stanford's medical school, where she currently works. She's a medical doctor. She's a senior associate dean. She's a professor of pediatrics and epidemiology, and she's the chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Disease. Bonnie has spent her entire life focused on viral issues, and vaccines in the developing world and beyond. And the bottom line is that Dr. Maldonado has been fighting and preventing disease through viruses her entire life. And she is on the front line today fighting COVID-19 here at Stanford and beyond. I am so excited to welcome her to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. So let's start at the very beginning. Uh, You know, we're all talking about viruses these days, but most of us don't even know what a virus is. So what exactly is a virus? And how do they infect us? Well, a virus is basically a little piece of uh, RNA or DNA. So these are the building blocks of life. These are the things that replicate, that divide and make up uh, the genes that create all of living things in the world. And technically, viruses aren't really alive because they don't don't divide and grow on their own. They're uh, basically nucleic acids, like I said, DNA, RNA covered with proteins, and sometimes have some of them have uh, fat on top of that, lipids or fats over that. But their job is they're very clever because what they can do is they can infect cells. They can be plant cells, they can be animal cells, they can be cells of any kind as long as they're alive. And they can hijack that cell and make that cell become their factory. So the cell that's human or bird or snake or whatever animal or creature you can think of can now is now been hijacked. And now that cell, instead of making that host, the normal uh, products is now making new little viruses. And then those viruses can go out into the world. So you've spent your entire professional career focused on viruses. This has been your area of expertise, viral infection, You've looked for treatments. 
And as I guess I have to ask you this one question, does this pandemic surprise you or is this something you feared for a very long time? Well, so I'm surprised at this particular agent, but uh, we always are prepared for a pandemic. It's what we do for a living. In the hospital setting here at Stanford uh, Healthcare, um, I am a co-chair of a group called the Emerging Infectious Diseases Subcommittee of the Office of Emergency Management. So clearly, we're looking for these things all the time. We just never know where they're going to come from or what they're going to look like. So we, are try, we try to be ready and we keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on around the world so that we can make sure whatever shows up, we can keep out of our doors. Perfect. So let's back up a little bit. There's talk about the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. Could you explain to the listeners the difference between those? Yes. So there is a family of viruses known as the coronaviruses. There are many of them. These are small, single-stranded RNA viruses. And um, they're, uh, they can infect many different animals, um, species. Um, but in humans, there are only seven known viruses in this family that infect people. Four of them are what we call seasonal coronaviruses. Um, these viruses um, have been around for a long time. And these four viruses uh, account for about 30% of all the colds that people get in the winter and the spring. Now, in, since 2002, we have seen three new, what we call emerging coronaviruses show up. And it's interesting that all three of these came from bats. So we know that bats have these viruses, we found out now after some years. And in bats, they appear not to cause disease, but the bat, so the bats can live with these viruses and not get sick, but occasionally they can, be in, they can infect other animals, and then those animals can infect humans, and given enough mutations, somehow these viruses can then become, uh, infect people and make us sick. The three viruses, the new emerging ones, one of them is called SARS, that showed up in 2002 to 2004. And the second one was called MERS, M-E-R-S. That virus showed up in the mid-2000s and it's still been circulating in low levels. And then of course, you know that in 2019, we first saw the third emerging virus, which is called, the virus itself is called SARS-CoV-2, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And CoV stands for coronavirus. And two is because the original SARS virus is very similar to this one. So now there's a one and a two. Um, we call the disease that people get from this COVID, again, coronavirus disease 19. So coronavirus COVID-19 for the year in which it was first identified. So there's all kinds of talk about how this is particularly dangerous, COVID-19. You talk about the infection level of this and how um, how highly infectious it is, the, fa the fatality rates. Give us a sense for why COVID-19 is such a problem. Well, that's a really good question. We don't really know too much about how this virus works yet. We are assuming that it's similar to SARS or MERS, and that in some ways it might be similar to the seasonal cold coronaviruses, the ones that cause common colds. But we don't really know yet. What we do know is that it seems to have an affinity for certain proteins in the cells of our respiratory tract. So it can stick to 
the cells in our nose and our throats and in our lungs and our liver for sure and maybe other sites as well. Um, in the nose and throat, what it tends to do, we think, and again, this is very early, is it can cause an inflammatory response and people can develop symptoms of anywhere from a mild fever with a sore throat and a cough all the way to a massive immune response that can be a, a huge inflammatory response that causes uh, severe pneumonia. And the problem is we don't really know yet why some people, and actually the vast, we think that the vast majority of people get infected and have no symptoms. So we don't really understand why that, what triggers someone to get infected and have no response. Some people get mild symptoms and then some others go on to develop much more severe symptoms. So we're starting to trace those markers and try to figure that out. So let's talk about mutations. You hear a lot about um, viruses' ability to mutate. What do we know about COVID-19 now with regards to mutation? Because you know, I think everyone's excited about a vaccine, but then if it mutates, will the vaccine actually work? Yeah. So it turns out that all viruses mutate all the time. And we just, um, it just, we're lucky that most of those mutations don't change our ability to make an immune response. So uh, for example, in this virus, it has 30,000 base pairs. So if you remember back to your human biology days or oh, biology. Now you're, really, now you're really testing me. <laughs> you have, you know, A, 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 C, T, and G, and they pair up with each other. So the, each of those pairs is called a base pair. Okay. This virus is relatively small. It has about 30,000 base pairs. And we know that it does mutate just like all viruses do. Fortunately, we think this virus doesn't mutate a lot. Um, and even if these viruses did mutate, we know that many of the areas that we call highly conserved areas, meaning they're the same over time, um, in, in most of the time we make antibodies to those areas that are highly conserved and somehow those can be protective to us. When viruses like influenza mutate, for example, those viruses mutate in ways that we don't fully understand, but some of those mutations in flu, for example, uh, make the vaccines that we've taken one year not so effective the next year. Um, we're hopeful, but we don't know yet that coronaviruses, because they seem to be relatively stable, once they have emerged, that is mutated to become a new strain, those strains, at least in the past, seem to have uh, stayed generally the same. The, with respect to our immune response. So in other words, to make it simple, yes, they mutate. No, and uh, this virus, we've had over 3,000 specimens of virus that we've sequenced. And yes, there are mutations, but we don't think they're important enough to affect the immune system's response to them yet. But we don't really understand the immune response. So we'll be checking over time. So at this point, we think our infections are... Um, are not being changed by the mutations that are happening in the virus as we see it now. So let's talk a little bit about seasonality. There's been a lot in the press about hopes and dreams that come the warm weather and humidity, that somehow this will go away because this happens oftentimes with the natural flu, right? With influenza. What do we know about this? Can we hope for that? Or is that just sort of hope? and hope's not a strategy? We really don't know. Again, it's a brand new virus. We just don't understand it. And I'll tell you a little bit about what we do know. 
The four regular seasonal coronaviruses are very seasonal. They tend to happen in the winter and spring. So we know that at least four of the seven are. Now, SARS it came and went very quickly, but it happened around the same time of the year as um, it did here. And what's interesting about that is that happened in China. And normally, this may not be uh, China's winter or spring season. So we don't really know what that means for seasonality. It's also interesting to note that it's showing up in the Southern Hemisphere, right. where they are currently not in wintertime. So we don't, re and where it's still kind of warm and humid. So uh, we don't know if it would have been worse if it were wintertime there or not, but we're def it's definitely showing up. Um, so we, the, we'll be using all these clues to try to understand what might happen if it shows up again. Um, I think that what we're seeing right now in the Bay Area, especially with the, the, it looks like we're kind of coming to the end of the increase in cases and maybe slowing down, hopefully. Um, what that might tell us is that if, if that is not, may not be seasonal, that's probably a, an effect of our ability to stay apart from one another. So um, if we hadn't done that, um, it's not clear. At some point it would have ended, but the question is, uh, would that have then peaked out again if people came back into the community and spread new cases? Interesting. So, so we don't know the seasonal question. We're hoping that it is seasonal or that it never comes back, but we're preparing in case it does. So let's talk a little bit about immunity. Is it the case that once you get hit by a virus, um, you automatically build up antibodies and immunity to that virus ever again, or is that not necessarily the case? Well, um, so yes and no. Perfect. So when we are exposed to anything that's foreign to our body, uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, with autoimmune disease, even to things that are part of our body. So our, our immune system is extremely clever, much more clever than we are um, able to understand it. But when we see something foreign in our body, like a virus or a bacteria, our body will generally make antibodies to that. It's a, an attempt to bring together um, a way to kill off that agent or hold it in place so that it doesn't spread. It does trigger a whole cascade of other events that can re lead to an inflammatory response. And generally that's a really helpful inflammatory response that'll keep the virus in check or the bacteria in check. Now, what we don't really understand here is what we know that we're making antibodies because as you probably know and have heard, Stanford is one of the first to have developed their own in-home, in-laboratory Stanford medicine a serologic test. So we can measure antibodies. We know we make antibodies to this virus and we know that these antibodies are very uh, specific to this virus and not to 50, at least 50 other viruses that we've tested. So that's helpful, but we don't know if these virus, these antibodies actually protect us. So it is the case that in some, the, the body can make antibodies that may not actually protect you from infection. So a good example is HIV. We know that people who get infected with HIV make antibodies, but they're infected for life, at least at this time. So an antibody may not always indicate that you're protected from disease. On the other hand, measles, when you develop natural disease or you get a vaccine, those antibodies are protective and probably for life. So you have very uh, big spectrum of, of 
options there. We don't know where this virus is gonna fall, but if we, again, look at the experience with the seasonal viruses, the seasonal coronas, though you do, people do develop immunity, but it's very short lasting and it, it doesn't last long enough so that you, and you can get reinfected. So it may be the case that that will happen. On the other hand, SARS, which is again, a very closely related virus, it turns out that you people did make antibody that was highly protective and we can measure that kind of antibody in the people who are infected even today. And it turns out that that antibody that's protective can last for many years. So we don't know about this virus, what will happen. And we're actively studying that right now. So at Stanford, we're looking at, there seem to be three different vectors coming at this disease right now. On the one hand, we're looking at therapeutics, which are essentially ways to minimize the, uh, the impact of the disease on your body, right? Yes. So that's number one. Number two is we're looking at these serological tests that you just talked about, which are to figure out whether they're, you, know, you have the antibodies. And then the third is the vaccine. So could you talk just a little bit about what's happening at Stanford in those three different areas and, and where should our focus be? I mean, it, you know, I can make a case for all three of those, right? I think we're all dreaming of vaccine, but apparently that takes the longest amount of time. So I'm just curious if you could give the listeners a sense for those three different areas of focus at Stanford. So you're right. We are not doing this in, in series. We're doing it in parallel. We need to attack everything we know, everything we can about this virus all at the same time. Because for all we know, this virus may dwindle and go and disappear and um, hopefully it does that and never comes back, but we think that it could come back and we have to be ready for that. So we're doing all of the things you mentioned. We're looking, number one, we're actually doing a fourth thing, which is we're trying to understand how the virus works. So understanding how the virus works is gonna be really important for us to understand how to attack the virus. So how to fight back. And the way we fight back is by developing therapeutics. And by those, that I mean drugs, or other uh, mechanisms to either keep the virus from replicating, that is by keeping it from attaching to our cells, or by keeping it from, once it may stick to our cells, then reproducing itself, or by keeping uh, the immune response from getting out of control and making us really, really sick. So there's all these different opportunities and strategies, and we at Stanford have already set up ways to do all of those. We're looking at the way the virus works. We're looking at different drugs. We're gonna be starting trials, and we've already started some trials, and we're gonna be starting four more pretty soon to look at all the different ways that we can stop this virus from replicating or causing an inflammatory response. And um, in some cases, it may be that we would need a combination of those approaches like we do with HIV, for example, where you don't use just one approach you might use more. It's just like cancer therapy. You never use just one drug, you use more than one because viruses mutate. And it could be that if it mutates, it may not be effective. That drug you use may not be effective. Then the other two areas you talked but, about- But are just, just if I could interrupt yeah. for one second, but simplistically sure. the concept there with therapeutics is something that will keep, if you get it, that will keep you from dying. Well, it can keep you from getting sick, maybe, and it can keep you from dying, and it can keep you maybe from spreading the disease to other people. Ah, perfect. So those All three right. things are really important. They are not mutually exclusive. Some of these therapies could potentially do all three. Some might only be able to do one of those. And so all of those very exciting combinations are coming in the future. I'm Howard Wolf. 
More with Dr. Bonnie Maldonado, an infectious disease specialist next on SiriusXM. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with Dr. Bonnie Maldonado as she stands on the front line fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. It's really important to understand, as I talked about before, why we think antibodies are important, because we need to understand what the limits are of the antibodies that we make and whether we're protected, and more importantly, or as importantly, if we make antibodies and we don't get sick because the antibodies are protecting us from getting sick, but we do get infected, then are we spreading that virus to other people and we may not know it? So our immune system is keeping us from getting sick, but not keeping us from being infected and spreading, being spreaders. So we need to understand all of that and antibodies can help us understand that. Then finally, what you said is really important about the vaccines. Um, as you can imagine, there's already at least 40 different candidate vaccines that are either being just studied in test tubes and some that are already being looked at in some very, very early human studies. Not here at Stanford yet, but we are poised to, to start talking to those companies when they have vaccines available. And those would be obviously in the long run the most important way to stop viruses like this if we hope to... Um, really not have another epidemic of this virus or a similar virus. But vaccines are really scary, right? Because if you don't get it right, instead of just tiny, you know, doing a little bit of infection of someone and then help them build up their immune system, you can actually hurt people tremendously. Well, and that's absolutely right. That's why it takes so long to make a vaccine. Um, because essentially you're giving a vaccine to a healthy person. And you want to make sure that the vaccine the uh, immunity that you develop, first of all, that it's safe for you to have that immunity. And secondly, that there aren't any other unintended effects that the vaccine may have. For example, when you're giving someone a vaccine, you're naturally activating the immune response, which is great. What you don't want is a vaccine that would activate a, an unhealthy immune response. And so it takes a long time, sometimes years and years, to develop vaccines that we know are absolutely safe and effective. And the current thinking is 12 to 18 months. Is that what you hear? Is that what you believe? Well, that's what we hear from the NIH. And I would like to say that one of our Stanford faculty members is gonna be working at a uh, national advisory panel to advise on vaccine development. We'll hear a formal announcement soon. So I can't really say much about that right now. It won't be me though. Um, and, um, <laughs> And um, we're hoping that, um, that all of our tools and technologies that we have available now could help us with some candidate vaccines within the next 12 months or so, 12 to 18 months or so. All right. So you're sitting there in your home office, because we're all working from home these days in California, sheltering in place. Um, pull out that crystal ball. When do you see life getting back to normal? And is it all dependent on this conversation we just had about vaccines or are there other ways that you could see life getting back to normal? No, I well, vaccines will ultimately be a really um, ace in the hole for us. But right now, um, it all depends on a couple things. One, it depends on when we will start seeing a reduction in infections. So when we get to that other side of the, uh, the curve that everybody has seen, um, when we start getting to the very tail end of that curve and we see that there are less and less infections, we can start planning to get people back out into the public, back out into the open. 
That won't be completely normal, or as someone said, the life we aspire to, but it will be a time for us to be able to at least start maybe getting back into some open public spaces with some social distancing, maybe staggering work times so that not everybody's working at the same time. Um, there will be a lot of creative solutions that will be involved in this. But it's very important that we A, track how many infections there are going on, and we have to see a major reduction before we consider. We think that will happen by May, but again, we're not sure, at least in California. B, given that this virus may still be circulating around the country and around the world, we have to be absolutely ready to track any new infections that come in as soon as they happen. And we have the tools to do that because we can do rapid testing, but we need to be able to have a good tracker in place across big populations so that people think they're sick, they can get tested right away. So that's one thing. And once we find somebody who's infected, we have to even more rapidly find all of their contacts and make sure that they're um, maybe not in isolation, but that they're taking precautions to not be out in places where they could infect other people while they're waiting to see if they themselves are infected. Um, those are at least three of the major things. We need to know the infection, that, new, that the infection rates are coming down drastically. We need to know how to test for people who are infected and we have to do it quickly and we have to contain the people uh, who are, meaning that we have to contain the infectious people so that we can limit them to small groups of people and not have the virus spread out. If we can do all of those things, uh, and, we, and I think there are many ways that we can do them, we can start bringing people back out into open, open shopping, you know, doing some activities and as we carefully move out, we can then start getting back to some sense of a normal life. As my mother used to say, from your mouth to you know whose ears. <laughs> uh, Bonnie, thank you so very much for being on the show. But most importantly, uh, thank you for being on the front lines here. You are um, a major, major player in our response to COVID-19 here at Stanford. You've been focused on viral infections your entire life. It's almost like you've trained your entire professional career for this moment. And I just want to thank you on behalf of myself and all Stanford alumni for everything you're doing. Really, well, thank you. And thank you to Howard, to you and to all the alums who have been so supportive. Um, Stanford is an amazing place and uh, we are gonna be in the forefront of finding a way to get ourselves back to our, our normal life. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app.